thought maybe you boys might be interested in putting on a big-time wrestling bout. You know, make a nice hunk of dough for yourself. It's time to fight! Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Morgan, you're out of here. You don't have the right temperament for the trade. You're a dead man. What am I supposed to do? There's always barber college. Frankie, I know you're a great wrestler, but my brother, who ain't as handsome as you, is as strong as Charles Atlas. Yeah, but I've wrestled women that are bigger than him. Sure, you got fat, sloppy women. Hello and welcome to Camel Clutch Cinema, the podcast where we talk about movies that star wrestlers or have wrestling in them. I'm Guy Hutchinson. And I'm Craig Cohen. On this episode, we are talking about Mighty Joe Young. And as always, be forewarned, this discussion will be chock full of spoilers. And is it safe to say that we could possibly spoil any Giant 8 movie? <laughs> I don't know. There's, you know, I bet there's a lot of people haven't seen this movie or have have seen this movie and seen the the 1999 I think remake and their memory is more of that film. Yeah. You uh you've seen this movie? I know we saw this movie together. Yeah, I, you know what? I think this was the first time I watched it since that time we got together and 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 watched it. So it's been a couple years for me. I think when we watched this last now we're talking when the DVD came out. Yeah. But I think we watched this way back, way many years ago on VHS cassette. Oh, yeah. You know what? I think you're right. Yeah. So this would probably – I probably watched it when I got the DVD, which I think was back in 2006. Mm -hmm. So it had been sitting on my shelf waiting for a, a, another another go-through. Right, right. Very exciting to talk about this. I know we'll get into this later, but this is one of your father's favorite movies. Yeah. You know what? I did not know this until I, I told him I was recording – we were doing this – this episode, and he he told me it was his favorite movie of all time, and he he gave me some some tidbits and and did some of the uh, the research I would have done, and he actually <laughs> sent in an email that we'll read at the end. All right, great. So yeah, this is a an exciting movie. There is a scene in this movie which we'll get to that has a bunch of wrestlers in it, uh, but it's a it's an exciting movie. It's it's a similar style movie to King Kong, which I think a lot of people you know um, uh, uh, talk about it and compare it to. And like King Kong, which got a remake in about 2005, this got a remake at the end of the 90s, right around the time that that Godzilla was being produced by Roland and Roland and Emmerich or Dean well, yeah, Devlin. Dean, Dean Devlin, yeah. Yeah. I'll so tell you, the, with, with this movie, I was really hoping they would put like a, a warning at the beginning of the movie saying, don't worry, everything turns out OK. <laughs> I was worried sick for Joe. Yeah, yeah, you you really you really do worry about him, and and with the with the precedent of of King Kong biting the dust at the end of that movie. Yeah, you know, King Kong falls off the Empire State Building. Spoiler, which I'm sorry we did, <laughs> we didn't warn that we were going to spoil that, but yeah, you get the thump 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 thump, and then it stops. Yeah, and and he's gone. He he leaves. And uh, and and Joe, we get a we get a much happier ending. Craig, why don't you give us a plot summary? All right, a slick nightclub owner, King Kong veteran Robert Armstrong, discovers the giant ape frolicking in Africa as the beloved pet of a young girl, Terry Moore. He brings both to Hollywood as a floor show sensation until some no goods ply Joe with booze and the blitzed behemoth goes bonkers. Highlights such as Armstrong's henchman trying to lasso Joe cowpoke style. Joe playing tug of war with muscle men and plenty of Joe to the rescue action make Mighty Joe Young mighty fine entertainment. 
Oh my God, this is the greatest description I've ever heard of any movie. Yes. Ah, no goods, ply Joe with booze, and the Blitz behemoth goes bonkers. Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, the director of this, what was he known for? What has he done? He was actually Ernest B. Shodzak, and he was director of the original King Kong. The sequel that probably a lot of people don't know about, Son of Kong, which came out, uh, I think, later that year or the year after King Kong. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he went on to direct a lot of pictures um, in the 30s and 40s. And the writer of this was also involved in King Kong and Son of Kong. So this was really something that was spun off from from that film. Yeah, they were getting the band back together. And this came out in the summer of 1949. Yes. So quite a July few years 27. after. Yeah, quite a few years after Kong. Yeah, so so this one thing that I had always noticed about this is King Kong doesn't look as good as Joe looks. Joe looks better. You know, they had perfected and figured out a lot of the articulation with the with the ape. Oh yeah, and and, and another thing is Joe's look was more consistent in King Kong and don't don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. King Kong is an, an incredible achievement and it's a great movie, but Kong looks different at different points of that movie. They used, you know, they used a model at one point, they used a big big hand and a big head so there's points in that movie where if you if you didn't know you'd think there were multiple apes running around right yeah no you're absolutely right uh let's talk about the cast on this terry moore a beautiful beautiful actress she's still around oh wow i didn't i didn't check 84 now a few years ago she did a commentary track on uh, a dvd for the great rupert and i was i said oh my god terry moore and she she sounded great you know and Mm -hmm. i I, you know obviously couldn't see her but she sounded great and was you know very excited and and uh and loved talking about her career um she posed news nude for playboy in 1984 oh wow (laughs) she was 55 years old good for her and and of course she famously in addition to having a, a storied you know career tons of films under her belt famously lived with Howard Hughes and she claimed that they were secretly married in 1949 oh wow so the year that this movie came out is when she claimed she secretly married Howard Hughes and so she felt she had a claim to his fortune since there was the whole thing where they couldn't find his will yeah get in line <laughs> and she plays Jill Young. Um, she's gorgeous in this movie. Mm-hmm. What about Ben Johnson as Greg? What do you think of his performance? I, you know, you know, at that time the acting was different. It was great. You know, it was mm-hmm. you know slightly over the top. You know, he played a a cowboy from Oklahoma, Boomer Sooner, as opposed to Texas. Um, I, you know, and and he was great because he was sort of the the through line in the movie of the guy that really didn't think that. Moving Joe out of Africa was a good do- idea from the get-go. Yeah. Ben Ben Johnson, actually born in Oklahoma, 1918. Okay. And he was, a, uh, he was a Western star in many, many films. He's in the Pro Rodeo Cowboys Association, Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame. And uh, so this is a guy, when he's doing that lasso stuff in the movie, that's him. And it's some of it is, you know, certainly not mind-blowing, but it's it's technically sound. And for an actor to be able to do that is unusual. And that's that's why this guy was an accomplished cowboy, you know, in rodeos, and as well as being a stuntman, rancher, and actor. Yeah, I think anytime you can get a rope over your head and swing it and have it do anything, I don't know, that's an achievement because I've tried I... and it's hard. <laughs> Yes. I was just going to say, I have tried this every time I get a rope in my hands. Yeah. And then you, just, 
It's like I even get an extension cord sometimes, and I'll be like, let me see. And you can't do it. No. Uh, Robert Armstrong, he was he was big time in King Kong playing Carl Denham and then then returns for this film. Yeah. Yeah. So the you know, the reunion continues. Yeah. Very, very uh, uh, great cast. And I think everyone in this movie is well cast. You know, there is this hint of comedy to a lot of it. There's, you know, some very powerful acting in some scenes. There's people that look the part, for God's sakes, Terry Moore you know, is convincing in the, in the thought that she could have possibly grown up in the jungle and been this, you know, this, uh, this, this beautiful, naive young lady. Oh yeah. I read that Faye Ray, her scream is in this film. Okay. Yeah. Apparently she, she didn't have anything to do with it, but they had on tape somewhere, a scream of her. And when they needed a woman to scream, probably in one of the nightclub scenes, yeah. they used Faye Ray. So apparently if you know where to look for it, and I don't, Faye Ray, you can hear her in there screaming. Yeah. I'm sure it's not as distinctive as like the Willem scream. So <laughs> no, but there, I bet there's somebody that's a big fan of both that one day was like, wait a minute. Yeah. Rewound it, you know, and then went over, got his other VHS, put that in, checked it out. He was like, that's it. That's the same one. Yeah. Uh, those discoveries AB. are great, too. Oh, it really is. All right. Let's uh, let's get right into the movie and then we'll talk about the the wrestling scene and, and everything that comes up as it as it comes along. It's got a very interesting opening. It says uh, starring Mr. Joseph Young as himself. Yeah, and you know what's what's really great about this? I mean, we get the whole sequence where Jill is a young girl, you know, finds the two African men with the the baby in the basket and she buys, you know, buys him off of 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 them. And at that point it's a real baby ape, I guess, a, mm-hmm. yeah. a chimp or no, an ape. Um right. so at that point, I mean, having seen this movie before, I was still in anticipation of seeing the real grown up Joseph Young when he appeared. Yeah, yeah, you can't wait to see him. And they 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 make you wait a bit for it. Yeah. Uh so we get this African scene. I guess audiences are supposed to going into this if they don't know what the movie's about, they're thinking there's a child in the basket. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't know, but it's, you know, they bring over this basket and it's shaking and there's something in it. She thinks it's adorable. We don't yeah. we don't find out until partway through the scene that it's a gorilla and she buys it. She uh, she gets jewelry. She gets her dad's flashlight and some coins. She uh, she she gives it to the to the African uh, gentleman. These are like uh, some kind of hunters or, or something that have poached this uh, gorilla and and we were we immediately understand that she knows that that no good will come of this gorilla if it if she doesn't buy it if she doesn't buy it it's it's being eaten or something yeah movie over basically yeah yeah exactly so so she goes to buy it she gives them a jack-in-the-box i love this part yes <laughs> she gives them a jack-in-the-box it cranks it plays the music it pops out it scares the hell out of them oh yeah I mean, these guys sell. This is, you know, this is Vince McMahon, you know, finding out the, you know, a swerve, you know, and just putting his hands up and go, no, no, this is, I mean, these guys sell scared in a, in a, in a very wonderfully over the top way. Yes. So she, uh, she names him. She says, uh, Joe, I'll call him Joe. And her dad comes home and finds a gorilla, a baby gorilla in his bed. 
He's not happy. He says he's going to be a, a huge, fierce, dangerous gorilla one day. Yeah, and we and get a really cool joke here because he says we can't heat, we can't keep him. And then they cut to Joe in his little baby, in his little carriage, drinking milk. And mm-hmm. it's established that they did keep him. So I thought that was yeah. a really cool little sort of comedy beat there. Exactly, exactly. So we're we're told he's going to be huge and fierce. And so anybody that has come to see this movie and and doesn't know what Mighty Joe Young is and maybe thought maybe that was one of the wrestlers we were going to see later, we get 12 years later, we're in New York, and we're waiting to see this giant, huge, angry, fierce gorilla. <laughs> yeah. Max we, O'Hara is yeah. is building a new nightclub. This is this guy is a he's a mover and a shaker. Yeah, very much like Carl Denham. You know who he reminded me of a lot though? He reminded me of Peter Parker's boss. Yes, you know what? Uh, in that opening the, the first time we see him and he's at his desk, he definitely had that J Jonah Jameson type uh delivery. I really felt that. Now, get, take this away. What's this? That's terrible. What's this? You know, I really felt he had that, you know, that style down pat. And he works because he's a he's he's in a sense the bad guy of the picture at points. And then eventually there are moments we're supposed to root for him. He's certainly not a villain we want uh, we want destroyed. And and there's a you know a twist later on in the movie with him, you know, or at least a change of change of heart. And so you got to like this guy, even though he's a jerk. Yeah. And they, they do it well. So, uh, so we start seeing everybody. He's looking for something. He's going to go to Africa and, and get something for this, for this new nightclub. And then this rodeo star, Greg Johnson comes in and says he could go with him to, to lasso lions. Yeah. I guess, you know, the rodeo business has gotten, had gotten cold at that point. And, uh, he was looking for other uses uh, for his school, his skill set. So, I I wonder exactly what Max expected to get in the in the jungle. I guess he thought he'd get some lions. Yeah. And I guess he thought he'd lie. You know, he'd make up stories. Yeah, yeah, because even, you know, when you look at the nightclub which we'll get to later, it seemed like it, the nightclub was built for just a ton of lions. Yeah. 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 It, uh, it when we get to the nightclub there's giant glass windows. It's almost like an aquarium for lions. Yeah. So he's out there and he's just sitting around just talking, you know, he's chit-chatting. He's saying, hey, you know, uh, uh, I was attacked by pygmies today. And they're like, really? You know, because everybody there is in on the gag that he's making stories up. And, you know, he tells all these crazy stories. And then they hear this roar and everybody's running. Everybody gets up. Everybody that's there knows something big is coming. And then we see Joe by the lion cage, and this is a wonderful reveal of Mighty Joe Young. Yeah, this was the, you know, the moment where I I heard the roars, and I said, oh, man, I can't wait to see Joe. And I had seen him before. (laughs) Right. I mean, they were really, you know, this was really, uh, really top-notch filmmaking in terms of building, you know, anticipation. Yeah, it it works every time I watch this movie. It is a real well-made movie. So he he's trying to get the lion out of the cage, and I think he wants to free the lion, but the lion gets scared and bites him. And so then Joe breaks the cart, and then he falls down. Yes. He clumsily falls down. And this is, at this point, we're looking at a stop-motion, uh, I guess, maquette of, mm-hmm. of an ape that, you know, that they're you know, through uh, stop motion photography or moving. So this is a choice that they made. This isn't a guy in costume that tripped. 
Yeah. They, you know, they uh, went to great trouble to have him be a little clumsy here. Yeah, it almost seemed like they took some of the fun stuff that we saw in King Kong and ramped it up a little bit and made it a little bit more uh, comical. And it really works for Joe because it, you know, it's a it's a character trait. Yeah, he falls down. Uh, they they chase the lion and and Max and his guys. They run after the ape. You know, they're they're thinking, hey, is there a way we can bring this back in some form? And I think they will even be happy to bring back a dead ape at this point. <laughs> yes. And, you know, what's funny here is um, so I guess, you know, Greg and, and some other guys, you know, go to lasso him up. And somebody keeps saying you can't lasso an ape. And I was thinking to myself, well, why not? Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> Has this been tried? Yeah. Yeah, they uh, they they show Joe next to what's clearly stock footage, mm -hmm. but you got to give them a pass. This was 1949, but stock footage of elephants, and he's bigger than an elephant, and yeah. it's a great scene because he's kind of uh, you know on his on his uh, off fours, you know, he's he's slouched down, and we see that he's he's physically as larger than an elephant. And so uh, so they try to rope him. He climbs up on top of a mountain. He grabs Max, and he's about to kill Max. Yes. And then we see the grown-up Jill. It's Terry Moore. She comes out. She's like, Joe, drop him. And Joe listens to her. This is Joe is her friend. And, and this is such a great payoff to her buying this little baby gorilla. Dad was wrong. The baby gorilla is going to protect you. Yes. Better than this, any, uh, any mace. Yeah, I think this this is uh this basically this character this uh this concept is as old as the hills. I think it's in I think Hamlet, I'm not sure, but I know it's in The Lion King. You've got uh you've got Timon and Pumbaa, they find this lion as a baby and they say, "We'll raise it and it'll be on our side." You know, this is a a very old concept and it it works for her. She raises this fierce gorilla and then this gorilla is listening to this little, you know, to this woman, but yeah. she's a full-size woman, but she's very very small to the gorilla and he he listens to her, he drops him and uh and then they go over to talk to her. Greg comes by comes to her house and we find out that dad's gone yeah and we see max hiding in the bushes because he's too afraid to come near her yeah he well he knows that she's got a bodyguard so he comes over with his contract and he he offers it to her. he's still very sleazy at this point yeah and she takes it pretty quickly yeah it almost seems like she doesn't even take any time to think about it yeah, it, it is very strange. So we then cut to the, the nightclub, which yeah. is amazing. It is absolutely gorgeous. It's called Max O'Hara's Golden Safari, starring Mr. Joseph Young of Africa, which is certainly a, a payoff to the to the title card at the beginning. And I really loved the set design here. Oh, yeah. You know, it seemed like when I saw this club, it almost seems like you didn't need the attraction of Mr. Joseph Young to get me to go there. <laughs> I see. I don't know. This place looked so big. I don't know how it could ever survive. It was. It was like uh, the Rainforest Cafe. It looked a lot like that. It looked like the Enchanted Tiki Room at Walt Disney World. It looked like Casa Bonita in Denver, Colorado, where they have cliff divers and giant trees. But this place was so big. It was like Madison Square Garden in there. I mean, yeah. you would. It looked like they packed in thousands of people. Yeah. So everybody's sitting around at the club and there's some comedy here where we've got people talking about the lions and yes. they're, who's this Joseph Young? I, I hope this is, you know, and they're, they're going back and forth. There's a lot of, you know, 
funny dialogue here. And then we see the press and they're, you know, we, we got to know, you got to tell us who Joseph Young is. Yeah. I love this. It was like almost, they, they sort of panned down the bar and would stop at each couple and they would get their comments in. And this is where we learn that there's, you know, reinforced glass to keep the lines behind the glass. And, and nobody knows who this Joseph Young is. The nightclub act is is great the way they started off. They he introduces Terry, says she's a friend of Joseph Young. She sits down and plays Beautiful Dreamer on the piano. And people start getting really irritated. The crowd sure. starts to turn. I would. And and then the stage rises up to reveal Mr. Joseph Young of Africa holding the piano over his head. She's, you know, he's holding the floor she was on. And People are terrified. Yeah. And then he starts rotating like he's on like a mechanical Lazy Susan or something. Yeah, it must have been one heck of a powerful Lazy Susan because he's gigantic. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Beautiful Dreamer. I went and looked this song up to find out more about it. Obviously, everybody's heard this song before. It's a very familiar melody. Mm -hmm. uh, but I found out it was written by Stephen Foster, who, who lived from 1826 to 1864, published after his death in March of 1864. And they said that the first edition of this declared that it was the last song he ever wrote. Wow. And it was composed a few days prior to his death. However... <laughs> The copyright date on the first edition is 1862, which means he copyrighted it prior to his death by two years. And there are apparently 20 different songs that claim to be his last song, and no one knows which one is his last song. Oh, man. Can you imagine if, if he had lived in, in this, you know, sort of in this century, we'd be getting music from him sort of like Tupac, Fuck, you know, yeah. for years and years and years after his death. Yeah, it's it, it is a very beautiful song. I'm sure people can remember. It's beautiful dreamer, wake unto me. It's mm -hmm. you know, it, it's been used for comic effect in a lot of things. And if you watch some older movies, occasionally it'll be on, and it's it's sometimes used as a lullaby. Uh, it it's apparently a lover uh, serenading the the beautiful dreamer in the song, which who who's oblivious to the world and according to some scholars that have researched this, is probably dead. The song is probably written by uh, someone to their dead lover because a lot of Foster's work apparently would have dead young women in it. Mm. Creepy, right? right? Thing. Yeah. Now, in the remake that they made, they didn't use Beautiful Dreamer at all, but they, they found a, an equally, I think, original uh, and beautiful African song. Okay. which uh, plays doo -doo 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 throughout the whole movie, which is really, really nice. They've got wonderful singers. And, you know, I, I don't know the actual words, but it sounds like, Yimba, wimbo, yim, you know, and it's just really great. And they play that just like in this movie where you constantly hear Beautiful Dreamer, you know, in instrumental form throughout the whole movie. And they'll play it faster and slower, depending on what the scene is. The new one does the same thing, but with a totally different song and with an African song, which I guess would make more sense yeah. that she would know it when she comes there to play. Mm -hmm. We get to the tug of war scene, Craig. Yes. This is. This is a great scene. This really, really makes you, you know, when you're if you're watching a movie like we are looking for wrestling action, this is a real big wrestling payoff. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got, you know, 10 guys in a, in a row um, that all, you know, for the most part, had some involvement in pro wrestling uh, either before or after this movie. 
So let's let's run through them one at a time. The first guy we see, he introduces him as Sammy Stein, and he breaks a chain. Each one of them has a strongman thing. And so he breaks a chain and stands there, looks really menacing, as they all do. And I found an article from 1941, February 17th, out of the Reading Eagle. And it said, new wrestling promoter for Reading brings Sammy Stein. I mean, this guy was big enough sports page a big headline just for him. Special one-hour match added to Thursday's card. Sammy Stein, one of the greatest flying tackle experts in the game, who left the New York Giants professional football team to invade the grappling game, has signed on to meet Billy Wooper Watson, former light heavyweight champion of England. The Stein-Watson match is carded as a special attraction. Stein, one of the few Jewish grapplers to gain recognition as a standout grappler, has been grappling in sensational style as of late, and he's considered a leading contender for the world's championship. This is is interesting, mostly because they use the word grapple so much. Yes. Next, we have Killer Carl Davis, and he bends a metal bar. Hey, that's a that's a great feat for anybody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so tell me about this San Jose news article. All right. So it's got the headline of unusual Matt card here next week. So it's a promo for an upcoming match, and it says it'll be jumping Joe Savoldi versus Carl Killer Davis in the main event on next Wednesday night Civic Auditorium wrestling card. Um, Davis first insisted that the match be one fall to a finish with the entire burst going to the winner, but Savoldi would not accept such terms. As a result, the match will be over the regulation one hour route, two out of three falls deciding. And I love that. It's like an Ironman match. It really sounds exciting. It also sounds like for good, for whatever reason, Davis had no pull here. He's like, Hey, this is what I wanted. And I, and he insisted, it says he insisted that it be a one fall to the finish match. Spaldi's like, no. And then he's like, all right, well, I guess, I guess we'll do it your way. Maybe he was playing the heel and he, and he had to do the, uh, you know, I'm just going to get my one fall and, and, you know, take the money and run. Yeah. The next guy we see is, is Rasputin, the mad Russian. That's how they bill him in the movie. And he's got handcuffs on and he just pops them right off. Yeah. And I found an article 1935. So we're talking quite a quite a deal before this movie came out from the Telegraph Herald. Ivan Rasputin to wrestle the bat. Well, okay, that's a great headline. I'm reading. <laughs> Ivan Rasputin, Russian Cossack, will make his debut in. And this is I'm not exactly sure how this is pronounced, but I think it's Dubois. When he meets the bat in the semi-final bout of Ken Fennelton's wrestling card featuring the world champion Midget Fisher and Gio Doucette at the athletic field on Friday night, September 20th. Now, here's what I like. Rasputin wears a full beard and has a body covered in hair, although he doesn't depend on his appearance to put him over. <laughs> Ivan is one of the strongest wrestlers in the game to today, which was proven when he wrestled Gio Doucette to a 90-minute draw in Chicago two weeks ago. Rasputin is in demand all over the country, having wrestled in larger cities from coast to coast, and he meets a very tough, clever wrestler in The Bat. The Bat has appeared here several times and has given a very good account of himself. The fans have all had their guess as to who this mass marvel is and will welcome the man that will come down and force him to unmask. So it sounds like the bat was the heel here and everybody wanted to see Ivan Rasputin come and and pull that mask off. Yeah, and they fought to a a, a 90-minute draw in a a previous match or 
Um, Can I you mean, imagine that? I know. I know. We talked about this on the um, No Holds Barred, not the Hulk Hogan No Holds Barred episode. The other No Holds Barred we did with the Bowery Boys about mm-hmm. how so much wrestling from this time period is just lost. And I mean, we're reading about some amazing stuff here. I mean, a ninety-minute match—that's you know—that's a half hour. You know, shorter than SmackDown is each week. Yes, yes. It really, I mean, just two guys going toe to toe really must have been something. Ivan Rasputin. So uh, a lot of these guys, it's interesting. There's really not a lot of information on them today. The the best way to find information is to go through news archives and look for old articles like this. Uh, but the next guy that we see in this, you actually don't have to look very far. There's a lot of information on him. He was in No Holds Barred. It was the guy who played the trainer in that movie. It's Bomber Kulki. And when they introduce him, he's got a barbell and he flexes it. Yeah, it's, it, and it's one of those big. It looks like something that I, you know, that me or you would curl with with two hands. Yeah, it. Well, if we were lucky, yeah. it looks humongous and heavy, but it also looks like something out of Roger Rabbit. So it's very cartoonish. And out of all the feats of strength we've seen so far, this is the one that's the easiest to fake. You put two basketballs on, and then you paint it black. Yes. Henry Kulke, uh, born in 1911, died 1965. Very famous American actor. He was a former pro wrestler, and he he was probably best remembered for his role as Chief Petty Officer Curly Jones from The Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which was a, a television show, very popular. But he also appeared in dozens and dozens of films and television shows. This was a, a well-known actor and uh, and a guy I think we'll probably end up seeing more of. Um, I wasn't surprised to see him again just because of his the amount of work he's done. You know, it was interesting to see him pop up again. Yeah. Who was next? Slamming Sammy Meneker. Um, and the crowd response he got was, that's my boy. There's a lot of yeah. interesting yep. crowd noise here. That's weird. From this moment on, I think almost everybody gets a weird, you know, crowd response where somebody just says something in the crowd. I don't know if the, you know, when they were screening the movie, they're like, not enough's happening. Let's get a loud heckler in the background. But it is weird. I love his feat of strength. I I remember this is a feat of strength that impressed you then. And I think, you know, to this day, it it still impresses. I know you and me and, and probably impresses a lot of people. He rips a phone book in half. Yeah, this is something I don't think people will appreciate for much longer, though, because there aren't phone books anymore. (laughs) You know, nobody has phone books. So, you know, the art of ripping them in half is probably going to go away. I bet guys that can do it. And I once wanted to learn how and I I researched it and read about because there is a trick to anything, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you, you have to be incredibly strong. You have to have very, very strong hands. And there's a trick and a technique to how you you rip it in order to make it work. But uh, I looked into it. it. It's it is very interesting. And guys that can do it, I bet they've stockpiled phone books. I bet they go into an office building. They're like, uh, you got a phone book there? You, you, you're not going to use that, right? You, you mind if I take it? Because you, you got to have a room full of them so that for the rest of your life, you can keep ripping them up. Yeah. You, know, you only get one shot at ripping that up. Yeah, I didn't think about that. <laughs> Tell me about Sammy Meneker. He actually started out as a baseball player. And he played Class A ball for the New York Yankees um, as a catcher before turning to the mat. His name was Frank, and they changed it to Sam because promoters thought that Frank didn't sound Jewish enough. Okay. (laughs) Um, In 1941, his wrestling career was put on hold by the war. 
Yeah, you know, before you get any further, I think it's important to explain why that is, though. Back then, in the in the days and up through even like when Bruno San Martino was around, you were known by your nationality because that's how they would put you over, especially in a city like New York. If you were Jewish, that was great because all the Jewish people are going to cheer for you. If you're yep. Puerto Rican, all the Puerto Rican people are going to cheer for you. And here's the secret to that. Or if you're Italian, the Italians, etc. The secret to that is you'd also get all of those other groups cheering for you regardless. So if you are if you were Jewish, you'd get all the Italians and the Puerto Ricans as well because you weren't the regular, ordinary, run-of-the-mill Caucasian hero. So, you know, by being a member of one of those, you know, those ethnic groups in New York or, or other big cities, you were, you were accepted by all of them. And a great example of that was uh, 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 Tony, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, uh, not Garcia. Garcia. is it? Thank you. Tony Garcia. I'm thinking Tony Garcia, which is his birth name. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but Tony Garcia, who was who was from, you know, he was from like New Zealand. Yeah. But he got over as being Italian with a Spanish name. It didn't matter because people just, you know, if you were ethnic at that time period, you wanted someone ethnic to cheer for. And so that's why his name couldn't be Frank here, Craig. Yeah. And really quick, a, a real quick Tony Garcia story. When I was a kid, uh, my aunt and uncle uh, used to take us into msg for the wrestling because they had wrestling once a month at the garden uh so one we you know one month we're there for a card and we're you know in the in the garden outside you know by the concession stands and we look over and there's tony Garcia in his wrestling gear on a payphone <laughs> that is great i one time was at an ecw show when sandman was behind me waiting to use the phone not the phone the uh the uh uh water fountain and I was sitting there saying, oh, my God, Sandman's right behind me waiting to use the water fountain. Uh, wrestlers get thirsty, too. <laughs> so so uh, tell me a little bit more about, about Sammy Menneker. All right. So in 1946, he was discharged from the Army after five years of service with the rank of major. He returned to wrestling but soon abandoned the tights and became a promoter and manager and later a commentator. Um, some of his protégés were his wife, June Byers, and gorgeous George Wagner. Yeah, very famous. Yeah, he was a licensed pilot and used to fly wow. to many of their bookings. This guy's amazing. Yeah, and he actually, he's got some other movie appearances in addition to Mighty Joe Young, Abbott and Costello in the Foreign Legion, and Elias the Champ. Which is the Gorgeous George film, and the Abbott and Costello movie also has a, a big wrestling theme throughout. So that's fantastic. Uh, he died in 1994 yep. at the age of 79. Mm-hmm. Mac the Iron Man. They, this one gets a response from a woman going, oh, wow, what a man, <laughs> as he bends a railroad spike. And it is at this point that you start to wonder, what what do they have left to prove? You know, yeah. I mean, I, I keep waiting for one of them to just start digging a hole in the ground. Or <laughs> uh, but this guy appears to be the only one that was not a professional wrestler. I, I looked him up and I did find lots of people online saying all of these guys are pro wrestlers, but I couldn't find a single bit of information that said he was a pro wrestler. I did find a Time magazine, actually True magazine article from the 1950s that mentioned him. It was called Strongman in the Barroom, Ian, Big Mac. Bachelor. That was his real name. Uh, Mac the Iron Man is a, is a fantastic nickname, but uh, he went by Big Mac mostly, and he tended bar in Hollywood when he wasn't performing stuntman, strongman tricks, you know, like bending a railroad spike or any of the other things the guys do in this movie. 
Mm-hmm. He he uh, was an arm wrestler. He would arm wrestle anybody that came into the bar. And for 20 years, he never lost a single match. And he would also bend bottle caps with his fingers. You know what? I, I did some additional research, and I found out his trick was he would go over the top like Stallone in, in <laughs> Over the Top. So he got that little advantage with the, you know, you hook the thumb over. That's right. Go over the top, Dad. <laughs> Uh, I also found an arm wrestling article. Yes, there was one in Sports Illustrated, October 9th, 1978, which in in the midst of a bigger article about arm wrestling said during 1940s and 50s, a bartender, the legendary Ian Mack Bachelor, began to focus a bit more attention on the sport until he retired in the 1960s at the age of approximately 60. Bachelor took on all comers night after night year after year at his bar in Los Angeles, playing right hand or left hand, seated or standing, handshake or thumb block, sick or well, tired or fresh, drunk or sober, and straightened the arm of every single man he met. So this legend, whether it's 100% true or not, this guy was a tough, tough guy. That is, it's just amazing. I mean, to think of all those years going undefeated. Yeah, I mean, it didn't matter what was going on. And they said he would drink like a keg of beer a day. So this guy was probably hammered half the times he did this. And he also managed to maintain a great, great looking mustache. He did. He had a beautiful handlebar mustache that you would never believe was real. This guy looked like Big Bully Busick. Do you remember him? He was a wrestler in WWE during the Doink the Clown era. Okay. And he, he came out for a short time, was managed by Harvey Whippleman, and uh, and uh, had the, you know, the, the curly mustache. That's great. <laughs> so, uh, so Wee Willie Davis is next. Tell me about Wee Willie Davis. What do they say when they show him? Look, he's got fur, and he's not the first guy there to have fur, so no. I guess they just noticed that his was the most pronounced. And he bends a pipe, and he gives the pipe a look when he's done, like he's slightly disappointed with his bend. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. he didn't like the fact that he didn't get it exactly in the middle. There's sort of a look he gives it that really sort of cracked me up, and it, and it made him stand out at least. We found a, a newspaper article related to um we willie davis and the... just such a great name this was not a wee man by <laughs> any stretch of the imagination and the headline reads it's from the san jose news uh september 4th 1945 sander sabo in semi with davis sander sabo the mighty sabo who is recognized as one of the five best wrestlers in the game today will rate no higher than the semi wind-up spot on next wednesday night's Wednesday night's auditorium wrestling card. He's working in the main event this week attract, and, and it attracted a crowd of 2,200 people. Which must have been a lot or they wouldn't have put it in there. Yes, and dis, but despite his ability and drawing power, the famed Hungarian rates no better than the 45-minute semi next week and his opponent, opponent will be another well-known character in the person of Wee Willie Davis. And uh, here we go again. It's a main event of one hour. Um yeah, this is so. This is the that's the undercard, but the main yeah. event we get what Billy Hansen and with yeah. Vincent Lopez, the Mexican idol who once held the world title. Yes, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, so it looks like you were getting these one-hour matches. You know what a what a great time oh, it was. And then in the opening match, we got somebody named Babe Sharkey, the Texas Cyclone, uh, who was hooking up with Pat Fraley, who was a former police sergeant from Boston. 
see and it's, it's good to see they had that that you know that gimmick even way back then where you know sure it wasn't his day job anymore but it was sort of like the you know they were booking him as you know as the police and guy who knows he may have never been to boston this was the part on this article i like the best though reserve seat tickets will go on sale monday at the national shirt shop i love it i wonder <laughs> if it's still there in san jose uh the next guy we see man mountain dean, dean. <laughs> he bends a horseshoe who bent a horseshoe, and I bet he was more famous than Man Mountain Rock. But I was so excited when they said his name, just because you got Man Mountain. I mean, I don't need much more. Yeah. Man Mountain Dean. Uh, 1953, we found his obituary. He died of a heart attack, uh, and they, they named him, his real name here, Frank S. Leavitt. And probably, once again, Frank just wasn't Jewish enough for the wrestling world. Yeah. So they had to change his name to Man Mountain Dean. But uh, he was a, they said he was a huge, colorful, one-time wrestler known as Man Mountain Dean. He died at the Georgia country home of a heart attack at the age of 63. The bearded giant who pioneered the current vaudeville type of wrestling had not been ill, and his wife Doris was with him when he died. The Man Mountain came out of New York's Lower East Side to enjoy a long and never dull career as a football player, wrestler, soldier, bodyguard, sergeant in arms, movie actor, and finally a politician. Wow. He wrestled 6,783 matches in his heyday, commanding between 500 and 1,500 for each mat, mat appearance. He was a longtime darling of Hollywood where his thick beard was one of his gaudy trademarks in the showman style of wrestling. And he began wrestling in 1916. Uh, and, and it really, really sounds like he had one heck of a legacy. So Man Mountain Dean, fantastic in this bending a horseshoe. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I mean, those rates for, considering he died in 1953, that prior to that, wrestling yeah. he was getting 15 between 500 and 1500 a match i mean that's that's pretty pretty substantial for that time the next guy we get i've heard of this guy mm -hmm. you know is, is a pretty big name i've seen you know old videos of him wrestling yeah the swedish angel uh swedish angel and he breaks the the wooden uh the wood board over his head or it's like um it's a almost, big it's more than a board yeah. yeah he gets a big big like two by four yeah it almost looks like a fence it. post maybe yeah yeah like, you know, and his real name was Phil Olofsson, mm -hmm. and he s suffered from the disease known as agromegaly. Um, and fish. Yeah, it's the same <laughs> as Andre the Giant. Um, yeah, that, so that's that disease that makes you big and also makes you, you know, Andre had a, a, a relatively normal look, but if you looked, his his head and features were bigger than they should have been. Swedish Angel really was out of proportion. A lot of his facial features were very almost grotesque. Yeah, um, he made his day, uh, or he he won his first title in December 1943. He defeated Orville Brown to win the MWA Kansas City World Heavyweight Title. Right, but then he lost it. He lost it a couple of days later. Yeah, December 9th, Orville Brown got it back. And then um, he later became a wrestling promoter and trainers of wrestlers such as Bill Mel Melby, who I do not know. Yeah. Um, and there would later be another Swedish angel uh, called the Super Swedish Angel, and he was played by uh, actor Tor Johnson. Right. So Tor Johnson, who famously is played by 
uh, George the Animal Steel in the movie Ed Wood, yes. went on to take this name and and be kind of like Santino Morella taking uh, uh, Gorilla Monsoon's real name yeah. and and using it. You know, Gorilla Monsoon was Gino Morella, Robert Gino Morella. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it is interesting that the name continued on. Sweetest Angel was very much a George the Animal Steel kind of wrestler. Yeah, that's what, at least his look. Yeah, he definitely seemed like that would be his gimmick. And then last and certainly not least, the biggest name of the bunch, the they, they, they bill him exactly like this, the former heavyweight champion of the world, Primo Carnera. And he flexes his biceps and metal bands that are around his biceps snap off and fly away. Now, I got to tell you that out of all the wrestlers or all the strong men in that line, that was my favorite gimmick. Now, not counting the phone book, which one do you rank as your favorite? Oh, okay. Not counting the phone book, which one do I rank as my favorite? Because I, I thought the metal bands, that's that's pretty impressive. It is. You know, the weird thing is I backed it up uh, just to hear whether they said wrestling champion or heavyweight champion. Mm-hmm. And so when I backed it up, I saw you could see how they were scored. You know, you could see the uh, where they popped off, how they had, you know, had a had a cut on them. You know, the mm-hmm. bands of whatever they were made out of uh, were were set to set to go, obviously, at that spot. Um, I do like that. I think I might go with the the horseshoe just because I've held a horseshoe. <laughs> yes. And bending one, that's pretty, pretty impressive. You know, yeah. I've played horseshoes before. That's uh, it's got to be, you know, you can't do that. I mean, these are all these are all tricks that, you know, that they should impress us far more than they do because people can't do these things, you know? Yes. The, the horseshoe would have been my second choice behind the, uh, the metal bands popping off. I mean, the thing about this is if they got up on stage and bench pressed a lot of weight or something, you know, people that can do that. You know, yeah. you say, Oh, you know, I, I work with a guy who he works out all the time and he can bench press a lot, but these things, people don't do these things. These are crazy <laughs> things to do. Yeah. You know, to take a board and snap it over your head, that's insane. So, you know, it's its like if they started eating glass at this point. It's just very crazy, you know. So uh, I do like this. The metal bands pop off. And I did some research on Primo Carnera, who I thought I knew a whole lot about. And I found a lot of information that I hadn't heard, okay. which blew my mind. Uh, he was born in Italy, and he was a heavyweight champion in boxing. He was a tag team champion in wrestling. Um in 1933, he knocked down Ernie Schaff in 13 rounds in New York City, and then Ernie Schaff died two days later. Oh, wow. And so he became very notorious for that. For his next fight, he faced the world heavyweight champion Jack Sharkey. This was on June 29th, 1933 at MSG. And he became the world champ, knocking out Sharkey in round six. Ooh. So a lot of people, though, say that the uppercut that he hit him with didn't land. Oh, no. It was a phantom punch. So 1933, he also played himself alongside Max Bear in The Prize Fighter and the Lady, which is a very famous movie. And then he lost the title to Max Bear, who's the the uh, father, by the way. He's a legendary, legendary boxer. But his his son, Max Jr., was Jethro on the Beverly Hillbilly. So yes. it's a little trivia. But Max Bear beat him in 1934. And in 1945, he, he tried to have a comeback to boxing because he had been out of it for a while. Didn't work, so he went in to wrestle. And he went 120-0 and 0 
which you can compare that to Goldberg's 173 and oh, I'm betting that Primo Carnera wrestled 120 matches because I'm really not I'm not convinced somebody may be able to prove me otherwise, but I don't think Goldberg even wrestled 173 matches. No, there were those the time. times I remember on Nitro he would come out one week and he'd be at, you know, 73 and then the following yeah. week he would be at, you know, 80. So yeah. that, you know, they were saying he was wrestling on the, you know, the off nights. And I, I know WCW didn't have the kind of road schedule that WWE had, but it was real easy to just pump his number up. So I definitely well, don't think Goldberg uh, went anywhere near that. And they, they've, they've admitted that, that, you know, that didn't happen that, you know, that they were in the back just making up numbers, but <laughs> I just, I don't think, I'm not sure he did 173 matches by the time he retired. You know yes. I mean? This was a guy who didn't wrestle a lot, but yeah, but anyway, uh, uh, Primo Carnera beat Ed Strangler Lewis, very famous wrestler among others. Eventually he lost to Luthez. And so that was his, his title match in wrestling. And he lost to Luthez. That's when he had his first loss retired in 1962, died of liver disease in 1967. Um, found a, a wonderful article on him that, that said that he, uh, 1957, Aussies Pack Stadium to see Primo Carnera. The White City Tennis Stadium drew its biggest crowd ever Thursday night to see Primo Carnera and King Kong in a wrestling match. What? Yes. So I, I said, well, I gotta find out what the hell this is all about. Yeah. Um, the match, by the way, declared a no contest when both wrestlers fell out of the ring and Carnera began punching King Kong. <laughs> uh, King Kong was Emil Saza who was known by his ring name, King Kong. He was an Indian professional wrestler born in Hungary in 1909. And he was active from 1929 until at least the seventies, wow. a friendly, positive character. He was a good guy, a face, and he wrestled mostly in Japan, Singapore, Europe, New Zealand, and Australia. So he, he is the, you know, he is the connection King Kong to this movie, mighty Joe young. And I found that really fascinating. Yeah. And that, that match he had with Primo, the crowd was officially estimated at 20,000, which is a lot of people. Yeah. A lot I mean, of people. So, so this, what we've just named is all of the people in this tug of war. They're going to go tug of war with mighty Joe. And it's pretty funny how it happens. You know, Joe isn't really into it. So they're kind of winning. And she's like, Joe, come on, you got to pull. And eventually Joe starts pulling and he just takes them all out. I mean, it's, it's a piece of cake. He gets to the end. It's just Angel and Primo on there. And then finally he, he pulls them all in and he starts dunking Primo up and down <laughs> like he's a, like he's a bag of tea. Yeah. And then, and then tosses him into the crowd. It is really fantastic. Yeah, and at so, points, Joe is doing this with one arm, too. He's pulling yeah, with yeah. one arm. Joe is Joe is mighty. Mm -hmm. So they lock up Joe at the end of the night. We see a billboard says it's the 10th Mammoth Week. Jill's mobbed on the street. She wants to go home. She wants mm -hmm. to take Joe home. But then we see seven weeks later, she's still there. They've now got Joe dressed up like an organ grinder monkey. People are throwing things at him to get free champagne. It's, it's, it's now idea. really an ugly scene. Yeah, and, and it's just a bad idea all around. They, they give people these oversized, you know, replica coins and say, throw them at them. And whichever one he picks up, you'll, you know, whoever, whoever's number it is, will get a free bottle of champagne. And that leads to some really unruly drunk guys who are, are mad that I guess nobody won the free champagne. And then they start giving the cigarette girl a hard time. Yeah, they give her a hard time. Max, this is probably when Max, you first start to like Max. He comes over and he's like, you're going to be paying for those cigarettes. You give any more problems, I'm throwing you out. You know. Yeah. So they're like, well, the hell with him. We're 
crazy drunk guys. Let's go get the ape drunk. So they they go and they give the uh, the ape some booze, which yeah. I thought was uh, one of the best scenes in the movie. Drunk Joe cracked me up. Yeah, and he just keeps down in the the bottles that they give him at first. They're like he doesn't know what to do with it, but then he 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 gets the hang of it, and he he can't have enough. So so Joe trashes the club. He beats the hell out of those lions. I mean, Joe really ever since that lion bit him as he was opening that cage up. Joe doesn't like lions. Yeah, no, and it's a really really cool scene because you've got you know live lions running around in the club at points. You know, you've got just all manner of havoc. He tosses a piano from the bandstand at one point. Just, yeah. I mean, the, the whole place is destroyed. It's funny that later on we see a sign that says close for renovations. <laughs> and I can't imagine that you could renovate that place after Joe got done with it. So so they go to court and we're told Joe has to be destroyed, that they're going to shoot him. So they come up with a scheme where Max fakes a heart attack. They sneak Joe out in a moving truck. They go on this big chase and this part of the movie, I'm not crazy about. I kind of feel that the end of the movie just happened and we should be wrapping up quickly, but we don't. We've got quite a bit of time left. Yeah, and then we get to a really, really, really great sequence where they come upon a an orphanage that is on fire. And the movie at that point goes from black and white to a, a red or orange tint. Yeah, uh, and this this is how you would have seen it in the theaters. The DVD does this. Most of the VHS tapes didn't, but back then the theaters would get the film and they'd be told you have to put a red tint on at this point contractually to play this film. And so that was to imply the fire of this scene. Yeah, and one thing leading up to this, I'll tell you, these cops that are chasing Joe, I'm not sure even with the court order, if if they needed a court order, these guys seemed like they were bloodthirsty. They wanted to shoot this ape. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So, I mean, I think if I was on duty, I'd be like, you know what? The ape got away. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to be involved in this. But I guess, you know, they're hunters. You know, they want to bring them back. They're, yeah. they're just like, you know, it's a parallel to the other characters we saw in Africa. You know, these these cops are are like the hunters here and they want to they want to bring back Joe. Yeah. So so they go they go into this orphanage scene. I do like this scene. Uh, Jill and Greg run in to save people. You know, there's there's some children that are upstairs. They find them in the closet. Then they go into the attic where there's less smoke to yes. get away from the smoke. They go up. And so Joe has to come up there and save them. And then then there's that toddler that comes out. They're like, there's a baby up there. And we see like, a, you know, like maybe a two or three year old. Yes. And Joe looks annoyed. He's yeah. like, oh, and he climbs up the tree and goes to save the toddler. And then he has this scene where he falls down holding mm -hmm. the toddler. Yeah. And then actually the orphanage, um, he fell, he falls down on the tree that collapses and right. then the toddler's in the way of what is going to be the collapsing orphanage. And this is the point where I said, oh, no, this is it for Joe. The, he's going to cover her. The orphanage is going to collapse on him, and, and it's game over. Right. Uh, but thankfully, he survives. Now, he survives. They say no one's going to shoot him now. And and I want to quickly point out the remake, they do this scene differently. It takes place at one of the uh, one of the piers out in California, you know, at, at one of those, you know, uh, amusement parks. And he has to climb to the top of a, of a, a big 
uh, Ferris wheel and the Ferris wheel falls down. And the, the difference is they don't just give you a second or two to be worried about him. They make you worry about him for like five minutes. They have wide pan shots. He's not breathing. He's yeah. his heart's not beating. She cries over top of him. I mean, they they amp this up so much more. Whereas this movie, thankfully, you right away are like, oh, he survived. Thank yes. goodness. Let's move on. And so we do. Max is uh, moved on. You know, they go back to Africa. Max is promoting a water show. And then they're like, we got a film to show you. And they show him a film, which I really like. It's a wonderful ending. We get to mm -hmm. see that they're in Africa. You know, Greg went out there with her and Joe is out there and, and they're all having a good time. I, I thought that's a wonderful ending. Yes. And Jill tosses Joe a banana and he, he peels it and starts eating it. And he even starts waving to the camera like the other two. And how about that, Max being scared of Joe on the screen? Yes, that shows how much of an impact Joe had on Max. I, I'm sure Max had Joe nightmares for the rest of his life. Yeah, now this movie uh, is from the old days where the titles would be uh, where you saw all the names and at the end you didn't get a list of credits. Mm -hmm. So it just ends with goodbye from from Joe Young. It pans up, says that in the clouds, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, really enjoyed enjoyed watching this again. I, this movie I could watch a hundred times. Uh, special yeah. effects winner for 1949, and no surprise, really, yeah. really beautiful special effects. Um, Ray Harryhausen was one of the guys who worked with Willis O'Brien on this, and Ray Harryhausen is renowned for this kind of special effect for movies such as Jason and the Argonauts, uh, Clash of the Titans, Voyage of Sinbad, you know, fantastic stuff. Yeah, yeah, he had a, a just an amazing career. So, Craig, you got a letter from your dad. Yes, I did. I love this. Please read. <laughs> All right, he says, I watched Mighty Joe Young like eight times in one week in 1958, maybe on the WOR Channel uh, 9 million dollar movie. They ran it every night, Monday to Friday at 7.30 and three times each on Saturday and Sunday, signed Craig's dad. I love this. I so, love this. Yeah. Because that was something you would do then. I mean, you didn't have a VCR. And if you liked a movie, you'd make an effort to see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, they showed The Hobbit, the cartoon, which I really loved. I loved that cartoon. And they showed it about once a year. You know, you'd, you'd find out it was going to be on. You'd get the TV guide and look for it. And I remember one time we had a, a power outage, or at least the cable went out, one or the other, yeah. when 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 uh, the Hobbit was on and I was watching it, I got about a half hour in and that was it. And I cried my eyes out oh, and my mom promised me that they would rerun it soon. And they didn't rerun it for at least another year. And so I, I don't blame your dad, man. If the movie's on, you want to see it back then, you would watch it. Yeah. A million dollar movie. I remember those days, you you know, not, uh, you know, not not exactly the same time period, obviously. But mm -hmm. I remember when, you know, you'd have the, the million dollar movie on this channel and they, they'd show like a marquee and do, 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 do. And it would, you know, sometimes they'd have the midnight movie, yeah. you know, or, you know, and I love that. The, you know, the matinee, they'd, you know, they really they really made you feel like you were watching something special. You saw this whole big opening where, you know, they'd have a camera pan inside of a theater and, and it'd go dark and <laughs> your movie would start. Yes. Yeah, I remember uh, WOR or not uh, the WPIX here mm -hmm. in uh, in New York. Uh, they would do uh, something very similar with the, you know, the, the marquee and sort of the, the scroll through the theater. Love it. Just really great. Brings back some good memories. All right. So, Craig, do you tap out to Mighty Joe Young? <laughs> Even if I uh, was going to say I would tap, it's my dad's favorite movie. But regardless, 
It's really fun. I think there's a, a lot of action in this movie. I mean, you've got some some great set set design. I mean, the the club itself is worth uh, watching. This movie, Joe is just a wonder to behold. It's some great effects work, and I think it's got a nice mix of everything you want. It's got a little bit of a love story. It's got some action. It's got uh, comedy. It's got a ton of wrestlers in it. I do not tap. Yeah, I, I saw this movie for the first time uh, when I was younger. I, I was probably a teenager and I was at my aunt's house and she had the videotape and I was like, what is this? And I had never heard of Mighty Joe Young. And so she was like, oh, it's like King Kong. Take it home and watch it. And I like it better than King Kong. And from the moment I saw it, I liked it better than King Kong. I've I've always loved this movie. I love the story in this. I just think it's such a perfect story. And it's it's a world I wish I could go to. You know, it's a it's a time period that they cover that just is so beautiful. I'd love to arrive at that nightclub. You know, I'd like to go in and see a nightclub where they had lions behind a cage and then beautiful dreamer and Joe comes up out of the stage. I love everything about this movie. It plays wonderfully. I feel the end stretches a little bit more than it needs to, but it is just a great, fun, funny movie. I thought the remake was very good, and I actually would love it if they would remake this movie again. I I absolutely think this is a story that doesn't get old. So no, I do not tap out to Mighty Joe Young. Great. Well, Craig, thank you for joining me on this one. Thank you. It was This was really a lot of fun, and I really, really enjoyed running through all the wrestlers that we covered in this movie because I learned a, a, a lot about some guys I'd never heard of before. Yeah, it was really neat to dig up stuff. I mean, I found to find this information, you and I were looking for it, and there was there was a lot of these guys I thought we were never going to find anything on them, and then all of a sudden we found something, you know, and it was very exciting to to dig that stuff up. Also, this is the oldest film we've reviewed so far. Yes, it's, so, it's, it beats uh, No Holds Barred by quite a few years. Yeah, six years. So mm-hmm. so that is pretty exciting. Well, that's it for this week. And uh, we will see you next time with a new movie that involves wrestlers or wrestling right here on Camel Clutch Cinema. So you want to wrestle, huh? You're too little. We got ushers bigger than you. Leave. I got to take a crap. Don't you see? Your skills plus my skills in the ring. Tag team. Howard Patrols is John Triton. Staying away from you. No more rhymes now, I mean it. Anybody want to feel it? What's that smell? Down goes Jimmy King. Oh my God, a four-post massacre. No one can survive this. This isn't even a pay-per-view.